that indeed when we look to Jesus, all the things of this earth will strangely, strangely grow dim in the light of His beauty and grace. Friends, uh, would you open Scripture to the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 1. We'll be reading this morning from verse 12 to chapter 2, verse 26. If you did not bring a Bible with you this morning, we encourage you to find a Bible provided in the chair in front of you, and uh, you may find this passage on page number 9, I'm sorry, 553, or 51, it might be 51. As you turn there, we want to I want to remind you that uh, we, are, we started a new sermon series through the book of Ecclesiastes. Last week, we looked at an overview of what the whole book is about. And this morning, we are plunging into this book, understanding what God might have us understand from this book that starts with the word vanity. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What, what would a book like this have to say to us uh, today in the 21st century? Well, let's uh, listen to the Word of God as, as it is being read for us. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 12. Here's the Word of the Lord. I, the preacher, have been king over, Jeru over Israel in Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over in Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad. And of pleasure, what use is it? I search with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female, sl female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the children of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. 
I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil I had expanded in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there is nothing to be gained under the sun. So I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that, seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me. For all is vanity and a striving after wind. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun. For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. There is nothing better for a person that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat and who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, who has he has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to the one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. Amen. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Would you bow with me and ask God to give us his spirit? May we understand what he has to speak to us. Father, thank you that you are a God who revealed yourself even through the book of Ecclesiastes and that you revealed to us the meaning of life and what is worth pursuing in this life. Almighty God, would you help us to understand by your Spirit, understand your Word, understand indeed what it is that we should pursue. Oh Lord, would you be with us in the proclamation of your Word? Even now we pray. Amen. 
Friends, this morning we are invited to, to, to go on a journey. A journey of what is worth pursuing in life. Every one of us here this morning and every human being has a sense of what is life worth living for. Why am I living this life and what am I pursuing? What am I trying to achieve in this life? If you're a student, you are trying to see what, what career should I pursue? And once I get a degree, what will I do with my life? If you're a young person, you wonder, what are the goals? What are the dreams that I, I want to achieve in, in my life? You might be wondering, what do I want to leave with my kids? What you, if, you're, if, you're approaching, if you're approaching retirement, you wonder, what did I do with my life? If you're, not, if you're not there at the retirement yet, you might be wondering and looking forward to the age of retirement and, and thinking, oh, if I can just finish all this work and, and do whatever I want to do with my life. Finally, my days of retirement, I'll be able to enjoy life. Well, friends, what is worth pursuing? This book of Ecclesiastes, especially this morning, is going to help us and guide us and, and take us on some paths of someone who has already tried to, to answer that question and explore this question. You remember how this book started um, last week? We looked at verse 3. Uh, one of the key questions of this book uh, is at the very beginning of, of verse 3, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? What is to be gained from life? What can, truly, what can, truly man, what can man truly gain from this life? What is worth pursuing? Well, in order to answer this question, the preacher of Ecclesiastes takes us on a journey. Here's how we should understand the preacher of Ecclesiastes, not just today, but really for the rest of this book. Here's how we should look at him. Look at him as a tour guide. And he wants to take us on a tour. Unlike tour guides who typically uh, have not had first experience, first-hand experience with the, with the subject of what they're touring, this tour guide knows what he's talking about because the tour he's taking us on is a tour of his own life. The tour of what he has experimented. He has tried these things. He's not saying these things because he has had knowledge. He has experienced these things. So he wants us to follow him. He's recounting the story. He's giving a testimony, a personal autobiography of his own life and, and, and search for what is worth pursuing in life. So as, as, we, as we embark on this journey, there's a few things to notice about this, about this journey that we're about to embark. Uh, notice, notice who made this exploration. Before telling us about this exploration, notice who actually engaged in this exploration first of all. Look at verse 12. I, the preacher, have been king over Jerusalem. This exploration that we're about to go on is, is made by someone who was great in power and statue or status in life. He was king over Jerusalem. He was in the position of the greatest influence that any person could have over a nation. Now, you would think, you would think that uh, someone who had achieved the position of highest authority in society someone who had achieved the position of highest supremacy over a nation, someone like a king, and back then kings really had power, not like today. Back then kings really had power. Someone who was in that seat, you would think, has arrived 
at being satisfied with life. You think that he has arrived at, at a sense of having meaning and purpose in life. You think that he has all together. Yet the one who's actually speaking to us, the one who is actually taking us on this tour, and the one who's actually explored this tour himself in his own life, is someone who's a king. Someone who had the ability to do whatever he wanted to. So this man is, is taking us on the adventure on, on trying to figure out what is truly significant in life. Notice a second thing about this exploration, and we're just looking at, at this tour and what it's about before we get on it. So this is just, this is just like an orientation to the tour. Who's taking us on the tour? He's a man who's in great power. He's a king. Second of all, just briefly, notice how he engaged in this exploration. Verse 13, he says, I applied my heart to seek and to search out. Now, why is that important? Well, the fact that, that, this, that he engaged in this search, he, this is not just a hobby for himself. This is not just a, some sort of creative curiosity. Well, let's me, let me see what life is all about. Now, he says, I applied my heart to seek and to search out. This was not a superficial adventure. This was a devoted a search that, in which he devoted not only his senses, like eyes and, eye and, heart and, and hands, but his heart. He truly looked in his heart and said, I want to I understand what is, what is worth pursuing in life. This king devoted his heart to this search. And several times we see, even in our passage and then through the rest of the book, this phrase, and I said to my heart, this is not a superficial search. This is a committed search, a deep search. And notice what else, how else he goes about it. He says he's, he's going in the search by wisdom, by applying wisdom, by the way of wisdom. Now, when he speaks about wisdom, especially in, in this part and in mostly throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, when he speaks about wisdom, he's speaking about human wisdom, that which he was able to acquire on his own. But the bottom line is, he is getting into this exploration by using his heart, by using his mind, his reason. He's using the powers of, of deep thinking, of rigorous thinking, deep wisdom, to get, in, to get in and explore this, this search. Look at verse 16. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who are over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. Why is this important? Because the one who's exploring this journey, he's not just a man in great power and a great status in life. You know, people could be in great power and great status but still be dumb, not know how to use their wisdom well. This man says he not only had the power and the status of life, he had wisdom. He had all that the man can actually acquire. It was the greatest of all. This is the kind of guy who's exploring this tour. And this is a guy who's actually taking us on a tour of his own exploration of life. Keep that in mind. Friends, when, when we think about this exploration, remember that it's someone who has already reached the top of the ladder. He is someone who's very smart, great wisdom, and his pursuit was very intentional, very devoted. And this pursuit is not only for him, but it's for all of us. Because God gives this pursuit to the children of man, not just the preacher of Ecclesiastes, 
Yet in verse 13, he says, it's an unhappy business which God gives the children of man. Why? Because we find out even before we get on this journey what this pursuit will get us. It's amazing that the preacher of Ecclesiastes tells us the conclusion of what he finds even before we get on this journey. He tells us in verse 14 that it's all vanity. He doesn't allow us even a second to enjoy the thrill of what might be the end of this journey. He doesn't just let us hanging and see, hey guys, let's, let's go on this journey together and let's see what it, where it will get us. How exciting. He cuts off the excitement right away. He says, before even we jump on this train, I'm going to tell you, it's all vanity. Don't get excited about it. How sad, right? You say, how sad? And yet, he wants us to go through it. So, friends, as we go to, through, through this journey, the point, of giving this, the point of giving the conclusion right at the beginning is so that we may be spared the pain and the dis disillusionment that he had experienced. This is why he's giving us a conclusion of this tour right at the beginning. I love what uh, one of the commentators, Derek Kidner, said, to spare us the disappointment of our hopes, he warns us of the outcome before he takes us through his journey. So now, you've been given the warning, we've been given the warning, let's go on the journey. Let's look at, at a few bases, at a few spots, a few, at a few experiments he has taken to see what is worth pursuing in life. There are three bases where he takes us, and we see that each of them actually fail. And after that, he will take us to a fourth spot that will, he'll, he'll encourage us to pursue and worth pursuing. But here's the first base. Here's the first stop. Here's the first experiment that he had tried, the pursuit of significance through pleasure. The pursuit of significance through pleasure. Starting with chapter 2, verse 1, we read of the test of pleasure. I said to my heart, or I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. Again, the preacher doesn't waste anything to let us know that, that uh, even this will lead to, to vanity, verse 1. But behold, this also is vanity. And the preacher begins telling us of all he, the experiments, what exactly did he do to test his heart with pleasure? He began, in, he began with wine in verse 3. Look at verse 3. I search with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. Then, in verse 4, he tells us what he accomplished in regards to his possessions. He thought that he could really gain pleasure by accumulating stuff for himself. So, look at verse 4. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. Now, by the way, here's where a modern ear might look at this and say, what is so exciting about planting and making gardens, right? I mean, come on. That's a little old-fashioned, way-back-school stuff. Well, the only difference is, friends, that in antiquity, to be able to plant gardens and actually plant your artificial forest and have water to, to water it and all that, that was a sign of great luxury. Very, very few people afforded to engage in building gardens and pools and, and building up their own forests and this is a sign of great luxury for, for the ancient year. Move on. 
the preacher tells us in verse 7 a, a great list of possessions he was able to acquire. He says that he bought servants and had a great number of animals. Actually, look at the, the comparison at the end of verse 7. More than all who had been before me in Jerusalem. That's amazing. To be able to say, I had more than anybody in America. Just think of, of comparison, what, what it would look like today. That's the kind of thing he says, this is, this is how, how, how rich I have become. Then in verse 8, he tells us of his pursuit of money, of entertainment, of sensuality. He says, I also gather, gather for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines. Oh, friends, this man reached everything we might imagine as being the climax of pleasure. In verse 9, he reminds us again, So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. And then in verse 10, he tells us that what guided him in this season of testing his life with pleasure. Look at verse 10. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. What can we conclude about what this king tried to do for himself. What can we say about what this king tried to create for himself? He tried to create a world for himself where nothing, nothing was forbidden. Absolutely nothing. In verse 10, the second half of verse 10, I kept my heart from no pleasure. It's amazing. Would you like to live in that kind of world? Would you like to see what that kind of life looks like? A dwelling with, and by the way, just think of this, a dwelling with gardens, pools, forests, houses, servants, entertainment, so on. No one can forbid you to do anything that you want. No one. No limits. None whatsoever. How many of you would like to hit the pause button? in this book, in this journey, and say, pause the train. I want to get off. I want to stay here. You guys keep going. I want to stay here. How many of you would like to do that? And by the way, it just, just that, this idea that uh, having a, a, a place, a world with no limits, sounds like a place that, that tried to be even better than the Garden of Eden. Right? But the train moves on. You can't get off because you're here just to observe the experiment of someone who actually did try that. The train moves on. And as soon as you, fit, you hit the end of verse 10, which says, I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Look at verse 11. Then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil I had expanded, in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after the wind. And there was nothing, nothing to be gained under the sun. Now, you know what makes this verse a climactic point in this, in this phase of the, of the exploration? Here he's piling up, in verse 11, he's piling up all the key words of the book of Ecclesiastes, all in one verse. Vanity. A striving after the wind, nothing to be gained under the sun. Four expressions 
all tied up in this one verse. It's as if he's saying, I'm getting desperate. Now we could say, wait, preacher, what do you mean nothing to be gained under the sun? You just told us how much you acquired and accumulated. You just told us how much you were able to gather for yourself. You just told us how much you were able to enjoy life. What do you mean that nothing to be gained? How could he say that's all vanity and a striving after the wind when he told us that his heart found pleasure in all his toil and that his pleasure was the reward for his toil? Well, he was indeed happy doing it. But then... When he was all done, when he was finished with it, he considered, what is he left with? What is he left with when he considered all of it done? And he realized that he was still empty-handed, even though he was owning so much and parting so much, he's still empty-handed. Was he able to save up that pleasure and satisfaction for later? Was he able to bottle up the pleasure so he could use it later after those days are gone? The earthly pleasures he indulged in, while they were satisfying in the moment, they were satisfying only in the moment and no longer. Oh, friends, how many of us, how many people today who envy this preacher's experiences and what, what he reported would still keep these things as the dreams of their life and would speak about these experiences with so much more satisfaction. How many who have accomplished less than the preacher of Ecclesiastes will look at their lives and stop and still try to bottle up everything and think that they can hold on to what they have acquired as if that is going to hold on and bring true significance in life. It takes great amount of courage to look deeper into the thirst of the human soul and see that after you have gained a lot in life, you still have not gained anything that will be lasting. It takes great courage to hear that empty we come Naked we come into this, in this world, and empty we go out of it. It takes courage to realize that even after gaining, accumulating much, you still gain nothing. This man accumulated so much, yet gained, gained nothing lasting. He acquired so many possessions, pursued so much early pleasure, yet he came to realize nothing was worthwhile. Nothing was worthwhile. Nothing lasting. So the second pursuit. The first pursuit was the, the pursuit of significance to pleasure. The second pursuit was the pursuit of significance through wisdom. Since early pleasures and the chase after possessions failed to satisfy this king, he turned to wisdom. Look at verse 13. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. He acknowledges that indeed, 
it is better to live like a wise man than like a fool or madman. It is better in life. You get treated better. You do live a better life on this earth if you are a wise person versus a, a foolish person. But even this gain comes to a disappointing conclusion. Look at verse 14, second half. Yet I perceived that the same event happens to all of them. Now, what event is he talking about? Death. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. This explorer had the courage to look at life from the perspective of death. And the coming of death levels out all gain that we might have from wisdom. Even though wisdom is so much better than folly in this life, reality is that if death is the end of our existence, it doesn't really matter much whether or not one dies as a wise person or as a fool. Wisdom will still fail to help us in facing death. So the preacher concluded in verse 15, Why then? Why then have I been wise? And I said in my heart, this also is vanity. And then he goes on in verse 16, and he says, even the remembrance of a good life is not good enough. He says in verse 16, for of the wise, as of the fool, there is no remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. Wisdom has value in this life, but it will still fail to answer life's greatest challenge, death. And wisdom has no answer. Wisdom has no answer for death. So the preacher comes to the end of his pursuit and says in verse 17, So I hated life. I hated life. Why? Why did he become grieved and saddened? Because all is vanity and a striving after the wind. Even wisdom. Even wisdom. The third pursuit the third pursuit, the pursuit of significance through work. The pursuit of significance through work. Starting with verse 18, we see the preacher move to the third pursuit that um, is about, he's concerned about keeping his work, holding on to his stuff as if, as if, if he could just hold on to it, he would gain more significance or more meaning in life. He comes to realize that he cannot hold on to it forever that he actually will have to leave it to someone else. And he came to hate all of his work. Not just life, but work. You know, there are people in this life who actually find their meaning and significance and identity in their work, in what they do. They can become workaholics. They can become so, in, so tied up with, with the job they do that they actually cannot think of themselves and, as anything but the, the, the thing that they're used to doing all their life. And he comes, this preacher comes and, and says, even work itself, I came to hate. Look at verse 18. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I, might, I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows if he will be wiser or a fool. Yet he will be a master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. Now, notice, notice that he's becoming more depressed here. Notice the difference from verse 10 to verse 18. In verse 10, he said, he said that he's, he, was going, he was enjoying what he was doing. Did you hear that in verse 10? He was enjoying what he was doing. Now in verse 18, 
He says, I came to hate what I'm doing when I realized that I have to leave it behind to someone else who didn't work up for it. Sounds like the government, doesn't it? Because he realized that all that he has gained, he actually cannot enjoy, not forever. So in verse 20, he says, So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labor under the sun. So he concludes this section with verses 22 and 23. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is vexation. And even in the night, his heart does not rest. In other words, this man is so consumed with his work, he can't even rest at night because he's so consumed with it. I love what Derek Kidner says. If he, this preacher, if he of all people has come back empty-handed, what hope has anyone else? If a man like this comes back and says, I, I got nothing to show for, empty-handed, nothing to gain, friends, what hope do we have? If pleasure and wisdom and hard work cannot satisfy, cannot satisfy what is worth pursuing? And here's what is worth pursuing. Here's the fourth point. Here's the fourth base in our journey, in our exploration. Pursue pleasing God. Pursue pleasing God. The first three pursuits revealed the bankruptcy of our human autonomy. Now, he, now a, ta a turn takes place in verse 24 and, uh, and, and starts focusing on God's involvement with the world. And the perspective of God is brought back in the picture. Now, God was briefly, briefly mentioned uh, in, in verse 13. In verse 13, if you look, it says, the preacher says, God has given an unhappy business to the children of man to be busy with. And that unbusy, uh, un unhappy business is a fact of vanity of all of life. And to make things worse, the preacher gave us a, a proverb in verse 15. Did you notice that proverb, that saying in verse 15? What is crooked cannot be made straight. What is lacking cannot be counted. Why not? Why not? It, it sounds pretty fatalistic, doesn't it? Why can that which is crooked not be made straight? Because that's how God made it. That's how God made the world. You say, what, what do you mean? This is how God made the world? Yes, even vanity. From the preacher's perspective, even the fact of vanity actually has a divine cause. Say, how so? How can this va the vanity of this world be caused by God? Well, we might be very puzzled by this question, but the answer is at the beginning of the book of, of, of the Bible. And also we see the same answer, uh, answer repeated again later in the Bible. If we turn to the book of Genesis, chapter 3, we find out that God, I mean, Adam and Eve disobeyed God. And as a result of that disobedience, God brought a curse. God brought judgment and punishment. And the curse was not only over the serpent. The curse was not only over Adam and Eve. The curse was also over the earth. In Genesis 3.17, we read, Cursed is the ground because of you. In other words, when Adam fell in sin... The whole creation fell in corruption. All creation has been made subject to vanity. 
and futility. And Genesis is not the only book that says that. As a matter of fact, if we turn to Romans chapter 8, verse 20, the Apostle Paul says, for, creation, for the creation was subjected to futility or to vanity, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Did you hear that? Paul says that actually the whole creation is subjected to this vanity by him who subjected it. Who's him? God. Why did he subject it? Because he kept his word. Because he does what he says he will do. He told Adam and Eve, the minute you will eat of this tree, you will die. God made a garden with beautiful trees, beautiful rivers, but there's one forbidden thing. And man could not stand away from it. So therefore, God kept his word. God brought the entire creation under vanity, under futility. Now, so far, the preacher of Ecclesiastes has drilled into our hearts this reality of vanity. We cannot fix we cannot do anything about the fact that our world is full of vanity. No matter how you live, you can't change that about the world. What is crooked cannot be made straight. What is lacking cannot be counted. And yet, in verse 24, there's a change of tone. There's a change of, of attitude. Look what happens in verse 24. There's nothing better for a person that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. And notice how this, this verse ends. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? The preacher tells us that the joy we are pursuing in life is found not in the pursuit of pleasure, not in the accumulation of possessions, not even in, in the enjoyment of work itself, but it is in God. Our enjoyment comes from God. The enjoyment which he sought, which he, which he tried to find in the previous section, which was all vanity, now becomes a real possibility. But only when we realize that it comes from the hand of God. Not by seeking this joy on our own terms. Yet, even, even the ability to enjoy life even this ability comes from God. Now notice who is emphasized, who is praised, who is highlighted in this section of, of, of joy. Verse 26, notice what verse 26 says. For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom, knowledge, and joy. Everything this man wanted to acquire on his own in the previous sections, now we're told God gives him. But who is this man? Who is the person to whom God gives wisdom, knowledge, and joy? It's the one who pleases him. The one who pleases him. What should we pursue in life? What is worth pursuing? Pursue pleasing God. Our pursuit of life should not be the pursuit of joy. If that's what we pursue, we'll never get it. 
But if we pursue God, and if we pursue pleasing Him on His terms, He is able not only to give us joy, He is able to give us the ability to enjoy life because we realize it all comes from Him. Everything, the food, the drink, every, the work. We can find joy in our work because we realize that even that comes from God. We start realizing that the secret of enjoying life is actually enjoying God first. Enjoying to please Him. Then and only then, God gives us the ability to look at this world corrupted by sin, subjected to vanity, and yet see in it meaning and joy. Notice how verse 26 ends. For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to the one who pleases God. Friends, working hard to collect the things that we cannot keep, that's vanity. Working hard to collect the things we cannot keep, working, that's vanity. How many people today, oh friends, are given to this business of gathering and collecting without really being able to enjoy life itself? They're consumed by, if I just had more. They're consumed by the question, oh, if I could have the, the next experience, or if I could really do what my neighbor is doing, or if I could really have what he has, and, and our life becomes consumed, and we are actually robbed of the joy of, 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 of enjoying life because we're constantly looking at what's still lacking and constantly looking at what we could still have. Oh, friends, the person who pursues pleasing God, for such a person, they realize that everything we have is a gift from God. And that alone is the reason good enough to have a heart full of gratitude, full of thanksgiving to God, and realizing I don't need to have more stuff to enjoy my stuff. I don't need to have more things to enjoy my life. The Lord is able to give us a joy in what we have if we seek Him first, if we seek to please Him first. I love, again, Derek Kidner, what spoils the basic things in life is our hunger to get out of them more than they can give. What spoils, what spoils the basic things in life is our hunger to get out of them more than they can give. Friends, the things that we yearn for, long for, really only come from God. If we get that straight, everything else we'll be able to enjoy. God spoke about a time in Isaiah when He will restore His people, when He will redeem His people, and when He will create a new, a new creation. And here's the language He uses in Isaiah 50, uh, 65. He uses language that is actually the reversal of everything that Ecclesiastes spoke about here. Listen to this language. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be, and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands." you see, do you hear that echo that was, that was given up in Ecclesiastes? Now in the book of Isaiah, it's picked up again. They, and it says, they shall not labor in vain. Amazing. A reversal 
of all the fears of Ecclesiastes. And I love how Paul ends 1 Corinthians 15 when he has spoken to the church in Corinth about the teaching of, of the resurrection and teaching them the value of the resurrection and the fact that death will one day be, be overcome. And he says at the end of the teaching of the lesson on the resurrection, he says, therefore, if the resurrection is true, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Everything that Ecclesiastes feared and was disappointed about, we are told that in the Lord none of your labor is in vain. It's amazing. Yes, when we focus on God, none of our labor will be in vain. This is the very opposite of what this preacher experimented in his tour, in his life experiments. Oh, friends, there are many people today who are in full swing pursuing the same dreams that, that the preacher of Ecclesiastes tried to pursue. There are many people today who, who still have in, in, the, in, the, in the minds of their hearts, they still have these dreams. If I could just get this, if I could get there, if I could experience this, then I'll be happy. And I'm working hard to pursue those dreams. Friends, listen from this man who has tried it on, all on his own. Listen to him. He still comes to us empty-handed, apart from God. I remember this book was written not to people who did not believe in God. This book was written to the Israelites. They believed in God. They knew God. They weren't trying to live life apart from God. And yet, they were disillusioned, and they were tempted with all the glimmer of the world, with all the idols that hit them, with all the, the bounty of the nations around them, and they tried to be like the other nations apart from God. Oh, friends, the same temptation is with us today. We try to live life even, even with God, but in a way that really pleases us. We try to seek our enjoyment. We try to find our pleasure and satisfaction, the true pursuit of life in what we can acquire. The book of Ecclesiastes challenges us. It's an attack on the idolatry of the people of God. Those idols are empty. What those idols deliver us, even though we can accumulate much, acquire a lot, we will still come empty-handed. Only when we pursue God will He be able to give us, will He give us the ability to enjoy and to be engaged in a life that will not be in vain. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you that you remind us that indeed you and you alone are, the, are worthy of our, our pursuit that you and you alone are able to give us joy. You and you alone are able to make life enjoyable, find meaning and significance. Lord, help us to see the danger in trying to find joy and significance in the things you give us and not in you. Father, forgive us when we have pursued the things of this earth, which ultimately come from you, but we have looked to them and we have pursued them for our ultimate meaning and significance. Lord, Lord, would you turn our hearts, even this very moment, this, mo this morning, would you turn our hearts to pursue you, to make, the, to make our, out of our life the greatest pursuit 
to be a life that pleases you. Oh, Lord, help us live like that. Help us to serve you and you alone. Help us to sing your kingdom and that first. And then everything else you will give to us. Oh, Lord, help us to be committed to you above all things. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.